Let's begin our study on the book of Deuteronomy. The word Deuteronomy means second law. Deutero, second, nomi, law. When you read this book, it really appears like you're reading a repeat of what you just read in the previous few books. Question is, why? Well, this time, what we thought was a repeat to us is not a repeat to the people this book was addressed to. This book was addressed to a different generation from those who were addressed in the previous books. The whole generation of the Israelites who came out of Egypt had died. At this point, only three of those original adults were alive. Moses, Joshua, and Caleb. All the rest had died in the wilderness. Reason? The Bible tells us that when God asked them to enter the promised land, they refused. Though Joshua and Caleb begged them and said, come on, let's go in. They said, no, we're not going to go in. And so, they really didn't want to go in. They said, I oh, want to go back to Egypt. And so God said, all right, if you don't want to go in, you don't have to. So, one by one, they died. And after 40 years, all had died except the ones who did not rebel, Moses, Joshua, and Caleb. Now, so this was a totally new generation. This generation were kids at that time. They were not guilty of the sin. Neither were they able to remember what was told to their parents by Moses at Sinai. God had given the law at Sinai, given to them in Exodus, in Leviticus, in the early part of Numbers, but this generation needed to hear it. So it's a new generation. Therefore, it seems like a repeat of what was read. Now, we will see in Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 2, Deuteronomy 1 verse 2, that the journey actually from Mount Sinai to where they were now at this point of the book is only an 11 day journey, but they took almost 40 years to do the journey. Why did God take so long? Right? Of course, the reason was uh, the spies went into the land to spy it out for 40 days, and so one year for every day, but also so that they would all just die off. And they didn't want to go in. They said, we will not go in. God said, you won't go in. It's okay. So they traveled very, very slowly during this time. They went to about 40 locations, spent one year there waiting to die, so to speak. Right? And so, now finally, they're about to enter the promised land. Now, the Bible tells us that these are really the last words of Moses to them, because he's not allowed to go in. He, he had 
disobeyed God and the waters of Meribah, where God said, speak to the rock, but he struck it twice. And you can't strike the rock twice because the rock is Christ. Christ was struck just once. And that was earlier on in Rephidim, I believe. Okay, so Moses disobeyed God. He's also not going to go in. But now Moses is there with this generation and he knows he can't go into the promised land with them. So he's very concerned. He's very, very concerned that when they enter the promised land, they will fall into the temptations of the promise, of the land. So these are literally his last words. Like a father cannot be around for his kids. He's giving everything he has, very passionate uh, speeches of Moses before he says goodbye to them and they enter into the promised land. Can you imagine the anticipation, you know, after 40 years, finally we're going to be in a place of rest instead. We don't know where we are, we keep moving. Finally, we get what, you know, the beautiful land. All the houses are ready, the cities are already built, the houses are filled with things. The wells are dug, the olive trees are matured, the grapevines, the figs, everything is there, right? All ready and we're just dying to go in. Now, the structure of this book, if you're a lawyer, you will begin to see it. You see, this book is written like what we call a sovereign treaty between two parties, a conquering nation makes a treaty with the smaller nation, right, the strong nation, and says, if you will obey all these things, then I will protect you or take care of you, etc. Okay? So if you're a lawyer, you begin to see, because you've written agreements before, you will see that this is actually structured like the way an agreement would be written. A bit of historical prologue, blah, blah, blah. I wouldn't bore you because you're not a lawyer. I'm not a lawyer. I didn't see it until I was, I was studying this. But for a lawyer, they probably would pick this up. Moses was trained in Egypt. He was trained for 40 years as a kind of, you know, uh, in the family of Pharaoh. So he, was, he knew how to write a treaty. But if you and I as lay people see this book, we see this book not so much as a sovereign treaty, but as three major speeches. Moses is told, in seven days' time, you will die. Wow, I've got seven days to tell my by this generation what to do. So, basically, Moses probably spoke on day one, a long sermon, you know, last, last words, you're going to keep saying a lot of things you wanted to say. Then day two, he probably wrote it down, Day three, he probably spoke again along. Day four, he probably wrote it down. Day five, he gave the third and last speech. Then day six, he wrote it down. Day seven, he died. That's probably what it was. So after he wrote it all down, he passed the law to the priest. And the priest was supposed to put it all by the side of the ark. And every seven years, they were to read this law, book of Deuteronomy, to the people the next uh, to the Jews, Israelites. Okay, so basically that is the structure of the book. You and I will see as lay people three long.
passionate personal speeches from Papa Moses to his spiritual children. Now, the three speeches can be divided into past, present, and future. Past, looking back, past reflections, recollections, is a small part of the book. Present responsibilities, present rules and regulations, what you must do. Big chunk of Deuteronomy. Future. If you do all this, this, you will have future rewards, or if you don't do them, you have future retribution. Significant part, but much smaller than the major part is your responsibility. Rules and regulations for you now. I hope you understand the importance of this structure, right? Looking back, it's very important to see what God has done. It encourages us. It gives us enough faith to go on. It helps us to, to, to know this God. We're going to serve better. We can learn lessons from the past. But don't look back too much. A lot of churches spend all the time looking back on their glory days. Don't do that. Enough. Look back to thank God. Then, what are our responsibilities? Now, that's the most important. What we have to do now, that should be our focus. And then, if we do all this, this is how God will bless us. This is how, how things will progress. Future. Not so big a chunk. Right? Some people always visioning, talking about the future. What about now? What are you doing now? What are your responsibilities? Right? So we see this book is divided into three parts. Past, small. Present responsibilities or rules and regulations for our life, big. Future, what will happen? Big, but not as big as the present. Right? So small. Huge chunk and then medium-sized chunk. Huh? So we have S, L in the middle, present responsibilities, M, future. Okay, so roughly, let's look at the past reflections or past recollections. That's found in chapters 1 to 4, looking back. Seems very brief, like 40 years are just squashed in into the past reflections. Okay? So that's what we should learn to do. Looking back at the past, thank you, God. Thank you for being with me. I was so unfaithful, but you were good. That's encouragement to us. Then our present. So the first speech gets over in four chapters. I'm sure now he spent a lot of time telling them on day one, two, the speech, past. Then on day three, likely, he spent the same time, the whole day, giving them their regulations, but a lot of it is recorded down, okay, to tell us how important it is. Okay, so they were given a whole bunch of laws, a whole bunch of regulations for them to sink into their head 
to think about so that when they entered the promised land, they were ready for the temptations of the promised land. Now, they were going to enter, cross the Jordan, enter into very occupied land. Very, there were seven nations at that time, very strong nations. And these seven strong nations, you know, their civilization is so much higher than the slaves who were in the desert. They were really like country pumpkins. They knew nothing. Whilst they come to these new civilizations, they would be amazed, attracted by them, and tempted to imitate them. And these seven nations had some common characteristics that united them in a sense, certain seven types of behavior. Number one, they were all immoral nations. Number two, they were lots of injustice among them. Number three, the worst of all, they were idolatrous, hugely idolatrous, all right? So all these seven nations had these three common sins, immorality, injustice, idolatry. <clears throat> now, immorality was huge. Fornication, normal. Everybody had sex with everybody. Adulteries, very common. Divorce, remarriage, very common. Sodomy, very common. Incest, even within families, very normal. You say, how come everything like that is so bad? Even sex with animals? Why everybody is sex uh, obsessed? Well, because their religion was largely based on sex. You say, well, what do you mean religion based on sex? You see, they believe that. They believe in the concept of fertility. Their religion was basically fertility cults. They believed the land produced a lot because it was fertile. And just as humans need to have a lot of sex, to have a lot of babies, and if humans had a lot of sex, it will make the land more fertile. Well, it's kind of bizarre, but that's how they believe. They believe Mother Earth was there. Uh, was that the religion of Mother Earth? Today you keep hearing that term rather than Father God, it's Mother Earth, right? We think uh, the Earth is the main thing. So let us make the Earth fertile. So their whole religion was based on fertility, which to the human mind is sex, right? So they had temple prostitutes. Their religion was based. If you want to have uh, worship your God, go and have sex in the temple. You have sex in the temple, you make the land more fertile, right? And so that's how they believe. So often our gods determine our behavior. If our god is very harsh, our laws can be very harsh. If our god is very gracious, then our laws, our behavior can be very gracious. If our god is very swift to anger, then we, as people, tend to be, take revenge very quickly. But if our God is patient, then our behavior tends to be patient. If our God is holy, then we tend to live holy lives. If our God is very lax on these things, then 
our behavior becomes very lax. So a lot of times when you see the behavior of a certain culture of people, you can reflect it back to what is their religion, which probably rules the way they behave. Okay, injustice. Second one, immorality everywhere. Injustice, terrible. The rich really took advantage of the poor and the weak. Example, slaves were treated just as property. Foreigners were treated as nothing, right? Because they had no power. We had power. Women were treated really low because men had the power. So injustice was the poor became poorer and poorer because of usury, of lending money at ridiculous rates until there were just a few rich guys in the whole culture. So in unjust culture, the poor were really treated like the, the blind, the weak, were just, just treated like nothing. Injustice. Lastly, idolatry. So immorality, injustice, idolatry. Wow, there were idols everywhere. God for everything. Every, under every tree, there was some kind of idol, you know? Some countries are like that. Today, so idolatrous. Okay? So when we understand these three common things, we understand why the laws tend to address immorality, injustice, and idolatry. All right? So if you look at the laws, and you're going to see, whoa, from chapter 5 to chapter 26, 20 over chapters of all kinds of laws, okay? But if you look at it, they all address these three basic issues, okay? Now, let's look at some features of these 20 over chapters of rules, present rules, present regulations, right? That present responsibilities they must have as they enter the land. Number one, the one that strikes me the most is the repetition of the word, one God, worship one God in one place rather than multiple gods under multiple trees, multiple rocks, multiple mountains, okay? One God, one place to worship. See, you understand why? Why is God keep emphasizing this? Because they were going to enter a place where there was multiple gods and multiple altars and shrines everywhere. Number two, you will find that the laws seem all mixed up. For our way of thinking, we like to see things more systematic, okay? How we worship in church, that's the rules. How we behave in the family. How we then behave in society. We like to see things systematic. The laws here, when you read them, seem all mixed up. One hand, the verses will talk about how to sacrifice animals in the tabernacle. Wow, details, details. Suddenly, the next law is about when you build a house, don't forget to put a, a, on your rooftop, don't forget to put a barricade so that people don't fall over because that is not good. It's not fair. Some kids may play on the roof and drop over and die. You know? It's like, what's that got to do with worship? And then the next almost immediately comes after that, Something about, uh, don't forget to pay your slaves and your servants on time. 
don't hold back my salary. Huh? It's like, why is all these laws mixed up? I think God is trying to teach us something very important that we modern Christians don't quite get. We like to divide the sacred from the secular. We go to church, we behave one way. We think about, oh, this is about God. Then we go to office, we behave another way. This is corporate. I can do a lot of things here. But oh, on Sunday, no, no, these things I cannot do. Right? So we have this separation of, oh, when I go to play sports, it's another way I can behave like a terrible guy in the sports field. It has nothing to do with God. No, no, no. All these laws are mixed up to tell us that whatsoever you do, whether you eat or drink, do to the glory of God. In other words, worship is not what we do on Sunday for two hours. When we sing some songs and listen to a sermon and put some offerings in, that's not. That's one part of our worship. Worship is whatever we do, we do to the glory of God. Right? So that's why it's all mixed up to tell you God is as concerned about how you make an offering in the tabernacle as you are, how you pay your, your salaries fairly to your employees. Right? And how your house should be. Whether it infringes on your neighbor's property or infringes on your neighbor's privacy, you know, things like that. All that is worship. But for the modern Christian mind, oh no, that's not worship. That's separate. Okay? So we say, let's go for, let's go and worship God today. It's like, no, no, let's worship God 24 7. But all that we do, everything we do, we say, how does this glorify God? So for modern mind, very difficult. So God purposely mixes it up, knowing that in the future we'll have this Greek mind. You know, the Greek always like to divide body and soul and all that. It's just all one. I mean, where's the, where's the body begin, the soul, the spirit? I don't know. It's all one, right? Number three feature is, please don't compare these laws to present-day modern laws. If you compare them to present-day modern laws, you say, well, what's the big deal about these laws? In fact, some of them look pretty archaic. You know, they even talk about slaves, and even talk about uh, things that you and I would say, nothing great about this law. Remember, this law was given to the Israelites thousand over years ago, almost two thousand years ago, okay? You must compare this law at that time with other laws of that time. This law was not given for us. This law was given for them. Not for us today, but for them at that time, living in that culture, in that era. In fact, today, when we look at the laws, we think our laws today are even better than these laws. And you know why? Particularly people who live in Singapore, we have British laws. And British laws, unashamedly, were taken from the Bible. King Alfred took British laws, basically, from the Bible, and then took it for modern times. Or more modern times, I'll put it that way, right? So British law always evolved that it now looks so good, but actually it's from the Bible, okay? And it's evolved from this time. So when you compare, when you look at this law, compared with the laws of those days, of their neighbors, now all cultures had basically some things in common. Almost all laws 
whether it was in China, Indus Valley, Egypt, basically killing someone for no reason is wrong. Basically stealing someone's wife, else's wife, is wrong. Almost all cultures. Basically lying to your friend is wrong. Right? So, you know, that's actually the conscience of man that writes these laws. These are the laws written in our heart. So all these were the same. But the laws we are reading here in Deuteronomy compared to the other laws are superior. For example, in these laws, slaves had rights. In other laws at that time, slaves zero rights. Here, women had rights in this. You have to treat them properly. In other laws, women are your property. Do whatever you want. Foreigners, do whatever you want with them. Right? So kings had were above the law in other, other cultures. Here, kings were to follow the law. The kings were also under this law. So all people were under the same law, whether you were king or whether you were slave. So when you compare this law, please don't compare it with today's law, which is taken from this law and tweaked and improved and fitted into the modern time. So you can't compare that, right? Number four, these laws, as opposed to other laws of their time in Deuteronomy, it's basically thou shall not, thou shall not. Other laws is if you do this, this will be your punishment or your reward. Okay? Now, why is there a difference? Because this law is given by God. God can tell you, you cannot do that, you cannot do that. Right? Other laws are written by men and say, well, if you do it, this is your punishment. Okay, so you see here, the laws here were strong laws given from a sovereign God. Number five, some of these laws are very weird, extremely weird. For example, some of them say you cannot mix wool and linen in the same cloth. You say, what? My clothes are all mixed, right? How come? Because this addresses an issue they will face when they enter the promised land. What is that issue? Again, it's about fertility. They always believe when you have sex with another type, you know, it improves things, improves the fertility. It's like hybridization. So you mix animals, you mix plants, you mix, so here it says, no mixture. Ah, now you get it. It's because of the fertility cult they're going into, where men have sex with animals. That's good, man. You know? It's like, no, 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 no mixture, man. All right? Humans are humans. Another one, for example, you cannot, in Deuteronomy 14, verse 21, very strange one, you cannot boil a kid, a baby goat, in a mother's milk. You say, what is this? Well, in those days, boiling a baby kid in the mother's milk is like the, the baby having sex with the mother. And that's good. Incest. It's okay. In fact, it increases fertility. Oh my goodness. So don't, don't boil a kid in the mother's milk because that's what they do thinking that, right, this is another kind of, uh, of fertility. So, some of the rules here don't make any sense. 
to us. But it was not for us. It was for the Israelites entering the promised land. I hope you get it, okay? So sometimes you read, it's very strange, but don't worry, it's not for you, right? Some of those laws were specific for them. Number six and last, get principles out of this, okay? Rather than just looking at the law and saying exactly what does this mean, but rather see the principle behind it. For example, Deuteronomy 25 verse 14, Deuteronomy 25 verse 14 says, don't muzzle the ox that treads the corn. So when an ox is pulling the millstone to mill corn, you cannot close his mouth. But if you don't close his mouth, he will eat the corn sometimes. He will stop and eat the corn. That's okay. Right? Because in 1 Corinthians, Paul says the principle of this, is it not written in the law of Moses that you cannot muzzle the ox that treaded out the corn? The principle is when someone takes care of your spiritual needs, please feed him. Please take care of your pastor. Please take care of the full-time workers who serve in God's work. Feed them. Okay? So basically, Paul is trying to tell them, don't muzzle the ox. It's not so much about God caring for the ox, but God's principle is that if someone does his work properly, feed him properly. That's all. Okay? So you see, Deuteronomy 25.14 is explained in 1 Corinthians 9-11, to the principle behind it. So I hope you see, when you see all this bundle of laws here, get your context right. It was for the Israelites entering into a land full of incest, uh, immorality, full of injustice, and full of idolatry. Okay, So for you and me, it's like some of these laws are like, to do with me, right? But get the context right. So you don't really need to read them and underline everyone because it's specifically for the Israelites entering into a particular place at a particular time, right? So principles can be learned, but not necessarily the methods and the details, okay? Now, I want you to note that when we see spiritual laws, I hope you understand that if you look at all this, there are three levels of our life. Okay, First, we do a lot of unclean things, wrong things. We didn't know they were wrong. You know, we lie, white lie, not that bad, you know. It's unclean, but we didn't realize. For unsafe people, you know, yeah, I'm not married yet. I can have fornication before I get married with a prostitute. That's okay. That's normal, you know. So that's unclean. Then when we get saved, we realize unclean. This is unclean. I better become cleaner. I better try not to lie. I shouldn't have sex outside of my marriage, you know. Okay, so unclean to clean. That's a level. But you notice that a lot of these laws, it's not about unclean to clean, but from unclean to clean to sacred. Oh, three levels, huh? Unclean, clean, and sacred. Or we can say bad behavior, good behavior, and godly behavior. Oh, okay. So there are actually three levels. Not 
I'm clean now. I'm clean, I, Pastor. Now I, 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 I be careful what I say, right? I, I don't say bad words anymore. I'm more careful what I say. Good. If I'm clean, your mouth to clean. But then let's move to one level. Clean is not enough. Clean is decent. So decent people in the world are not believers. Very decent. Their lives are very decent. They don't have adultery. They don't lie. They don't cheat a lot. How would they? Right? Their lives are good. You have to move one more level up. From clean to sacred. What do you mean by sacred? You do it for God. You're not just doing so that you look okay. But now you do it specifically to glorify God. To please God. Ah, so from unclean to clean to sacred. So we have been this is a cleaning process, this is a consecrating process from year to year. Okay? Give you an example. If I preach a beautiful sermon, great truths, is that sacred? May not be. Because I'm preaching to show off how much I know of theology. What I've done is, I've done a beautiful lecture on Deuteronomy. But if I did this for the glory of God, I want God to be glorified in this effort, then I've turned what was a clean speech into a sacred speech. See, so even doing something like preaching can be just at this level, common, not sacred. If I'm a taxi driver and I drive a taxi, Sounds very decent job. I drive, I don't cheat anybody, clean. But I drive for the glory of God. Okay? Maybe in my taxi there's a cross, there's a Bible verse, and I'm the best taxi driver and polite and kind. And all I did was drive, but I wanted to drive so that my passenger will realize the driver is a Christian and this is the most polite kind driver, he carried my bags, put it in the, the trunk of the, of the taxi and was polite and thanked me and said, sir, thank you for, you know, you know what, even driving can be sacred. I hope you get my point here. As Christians, we don't just try to lead decent lives, but whatsoever we do, whatever we do, eat or drink, do it for the glory of God. So that moves up from unclean, clean to sacred. Now, when you see so many laws, you say, I hope so many laws. Remember, in this book of Deuteronomy, the word love appears 30 over times. Love and law are related. Jesus said in John 14, verse 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. I hope you get it. God's going to send them to the promised land. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. He said, but it's so legalistic, so many laws. No, legalistic doesn't mean more laws. Many laws doesn't mean legalistic. Legalistic means I do all these laws hoping to get saved. That's legalistic. Right? I hope you understand the difference. As a believer, I do all these things, not hoping to get saved, because I love God. 
I want God to be glorified by my life. If I, if you love me, keep my commandments. Okay. So when you see a lot of laws, don't say, "Oh, legal, legal, all legal." No, no. If you obey laws for the glory of God, that's called love, not legalism. So I hope we get this thing now. Let me just summarize very quickly. The whole book has three speeches. Moses' three speeches. Looking back, small part, letter S, small size. Present laws, present responsibilities, L size. Then we'll move on the next lesson to medium size. Future reward or retribution. In this second part of Deuteronomy, we examine the future rewards and retributions. Rewards if they obeyed the regulations given to them and retribution if they chose to disobey them. Now they were going into this land full of temptation. The religion was immoral Immoral religions are very tempting. You find that religions that allow lax moral standards or a man can have many wives are very attractive. Then you also see that religions that allow injustice where a man can bully the woman is very popular with men who generally rule. Religion where you can take advantage of the poor, you can exploit the foreigner, is very popular. Even among Christians, you find that churches will not touch usually on these areas of lacks moral standards. They don't say very much about their members' sexual lives and, you know, people before marriage going out together, uh, going on holidays and pre-marriage holidays together. No, no, don't, don't bring up these things because it's very normal now. Injustice. Even churches who are not talk about treating their members, treating their helpers properly, treating foreign workers properly. You know, we don't want to bring up these things because it drives people away. You don't deal with those, just talk about spiritual, going for Bible study, coming to worship, giving your offering. A lot of people can accept that, but don't touch my moral standards. Don't touch how I take care of my maid at home. That's a different issue. <clears throat> and you say, idolatry, how does that affect us? You know, idolatry is very, very much in the churches today, except they're not graven images. An idol is anything that we put above God. We, Our hope is in that thing. This is our hope. It's not in God, but in this. It can be something as simple as our jobs. We think our security is in our jobs. If I don't have a job, I'm not secure. So, you know, I, 
thought my job really is my protector of my life, my, my security. That's an idol. It could be anything. You know, even your health food. You think your, your health is because you take the right health food. That's idolatry. Health is from God. Yes, we must take the, have good jobs, yes. But it's God that provides us the right jobs, helps us to do them well. It's God ultimately that we look up to. These are means. Medicine's a means. The job is a means, all right? So all these things are actually already into our religion, into our faith. We don't realize how attractive they are and how we just quietly absorb it. So when the Israelites were entering the Promised Land, Moses told them, you have to choose. You have to make a choice. If you obey these rules, which to the people in the Promised Land are very queer rules. Why do you care about slaves? Why do you care about foreigners? Why do you care about poor people? Why do you care about women? They have no rights. You know, all these things, they would have to be make a choice. Be like these people or obey God. If they chose to obey God, then they would be blessed greatly. You find this in the remaining chapters. Uh, future responsibilities, regulations are found in chapter 26 to 34, around there. So it's a medium-sized hunk, chunk of this book. Then Moses tells them the horror if they were to disobey the rules given to them. Deuteronomy 28, horror. You read it, it's like if you really, really carefully, you get scared. What would happen to Israel, to the Israelites? How they'd be scattered, how they eat their own children. You know, you cannot believe. You mean you cook, you boil your child and eat your child, and you even won't let your husband eat your child because that's the meat you, you, you know, you can't believe these things. But it actually happened. Deuteronomy 28 is the history of Israel for the past 3,000 years. What? You mean written so long ago, it speaks all the way of Israel, yes. Deuteronomy 28, let me repeat, is a summary of the history of Israel for the past 3,000 years. They chose to disobey God and they went through the sufferings described in Deuteronomy 28. Right? It was saying, in Deuteronomy 28, verse 37, they would be an astonishment, a horror, a byword, and a proverb. You know, the Jews for suffering, for being scattered, is a proverb, is a byword. Scattered like the Jews, suffering like the Jews. It came to pass. Then God tells them, when you cross into the promised land, you divide six tribes to go on Mount Gerizim, six tribes to go on Mount Ebal. This is just after they enter the promised land. These two mountains face each other. In between these two mountains is a valley which is a very nice amphitheater. In other words, if someone stood at the bottom and shouted, it would echo between these two 
mountains, six tribes on Gerizim, the blessings, six tribes on Ebal, the curses. And according to Jewish tradition, we don't know whether this is true, but according to Jewish tradition, Mount Gerizim at that time was lush, full of vegetation. Mount Ebal was barren, just rock. And so it was almost a visual contrast to. Then the Levites were to stand in the middle and shout the blessings and the curses. And the people on both sides would say, Amen, Amen. That is true. Let it be true. It is true. Right? So he said, like, Cursed be you, Israel, if they didn't obey this law. And they all said, Amen. Amen. Alright, so it was like, as soon as they crossed over, see, Moses had done his part. He's going to die. But when he crossed over, he wants the lesson to be repeated again. And so this will be a graphic lesson for them that would hopefully stick in their head this curses and the blessings. If we obey God, blessing, amen, amen. If we disobey God, curses, amen, it will come to pass, right? So that was what Moses instructed them to do. And then Moses finally, he writes a song because he knows that whatever you tell people, they tend to forget. Lectures go in the right ear and come out the left ear. That's how it is. Our brain doesn't keep lectures well. We keep stories well, like this picture of Ebal and Gerizim. We tend to remember that. Or we keep songs well. So he wrote a song describing what God would do if they obeyed and what God would do if they disobeyed. So Moses not only gave his last speeches, three impassionate speeches to the Israelites, but he wanted them to have a song to remember all the law called and teach his song to the children and the song will tell the lesson of you make a choice between blessing or cursing. Okay, so Moses is really doing his very best to plead with them not to choose to disobey. But in Deuteronomy 32 and verse 15, he admits, he says, But Israel will be prosperous, grow fat, prosperous, and then disobey God. He predicted that. How sad. He saw them going to the promised land. He saw them eventually, soon after, disobeying God and rejecting all these laws that God had given them. But then he goes on to say, but God is so merciful that he would gather Israel again if they repented. He would scatter them. They would be scattered. There would be a proverb, a byword of a scattered nation. But when they repent, God would gather them again. And that was so beautiful. And he said in Deuteronomy 36, 
chapter 13, verse 6. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. He said, One day God will circumcise the flesh of their heart and give them a heart that will love God. Wow! He knew that all these laws they would disobey because their heart was still not a changed heart. The laws were given, the heart was still a sinful heart inherited from Adam. So, while he saw Israel being messed up, he also, God gave him a little peep that one day God would gather them and give them a new heart that will love God. Before he goes, three speeches are over, all right? Thank God he's got a replacement, Joshua. So Joshua replaces him. So Moses has done his job. He's given his best speech. He pleads with them. He writes a song. He gives a, a drama for them, Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And then he's replaced by Joshua. In Deuteronomy 34, it says that Joshua was full of the spirit of wisdom. God gave Joshua the Holy Spirit to be full of wisdom. It's so important when you lead God's work, you must have that spirit. And then Joshua would be a mini Moses, not as great as Moses, but a mini Moses. He would part the Jordan River, just as Moses parted the Red Sea. And as Moses led them from the Red Sea to Mount Sinai, Joshua would lead them from the Jordan River to Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal for that drama. So you see a little bit of a type, a little bit of the copy of Moses on a miniature scale. Of course, the Jordan River is not that big compared to the Red Sea, right? Gerizim and Ebal did not go up in a fire like at Mount Sinai, right? But still, the people would see a little Moses in him and obey him. Then as they were to enter the Promised Land, you will find that this word is repeated in Deuteronomy. You will, God has given you this land. Forty times it said, God has given you this land. Given, huh? But exactly as he says the land is given, he says you must go in and possess it 40 times. I hope you're getting what I'm saying. The land is given to you, but you must possess it. Wow, what does that mean? It means that the land, the promised land, the ownership, title deed, was given to the Israelites. It's a promise from God. But ownership and occupation are two different things. You can own a house but never get to stay in it. Because you're sick, maybe. You can own some beautiful food, but you never get to eat it because you don't have an appetite. Right? So ownership and occupation. You might own a billion dollars and never have a chance to spend it because you die. Right? So two different things. 
They would own the land, but they would never really occupy it, except for short periods of time. Occupation of the land, you must go in and process. So they would go into this land, which was theirs, a place of rest, and then they must possess one city after another city, conquer one nation after another nation that took their own effort to do. What's the principle here? We are also given promises by God. The promises are ours, given to us. But will you enjoy those promises? The peace and joy that passes all understanding, do you have that? The assurance that God will guide you, the assurance that all things work together for good to them that love God. All these things, will you enjoy it? Right? Or Will you just have the promise, but never enjoy the promise? Okay? So I hope you will begin to see that there are two, this principle is very important, even in our Christian life, that we got saved and God gives us promises. Just as the Israelites were out of Egypt, they were given the promise, the ownership of the land, but they never enjoyed it. Many Christians never enjoy the promises. Right? So, I hope that principle you begin to understand because for many Christians, all the promises are just there, never claimed by faith, as the Israelites have to conquer city and city by faith. Just before they enter the promised land, God allowed them two major victories over King Og and Sihon. Two amazing victories so that they will be encouraged and that Joshua could then go in and see God give us these two victories of our powerful kings then we can go in and conquer the rest of Canaan. So God actually had primed them to enter the promised land with confidence. So I hope you see all these things now. So Moses ends the Torah, finished writing the Torah, the five books. Pentateuch from Genesis to Deuteronomy. But three questions still remain unanswered. Number one, there was a promise in Genesis chapter 3 that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. There was a hint. Question is when? Still unanswered in the Pentateuch. Genesis 12 says, Abraham, through him, many nations, all nations will be blessed. Question, how is Abraham going to bless all nations? That we have to look at the continuation of a drama. Okay, this is how a drama unfolds. Little hints, but answer not given till later. Especially till the final chapter, it all wraps up. Third one, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6 says, God one day will circumcise the flesh of their heart that they will love God. How would God do that? Again, we have to wait for the answer later. How is this human heart of ours 
going to be a new heart. You have to wait. Okay, so these three unanswered question marks still after five long chapters. Moses is 120 years old. Nobody's been like him. Face to face with God. So many times, I think 80 times, face to face with God. Wow. God speaks to us now through the Word, through a prompting of the Holy Spirit in our heart, through some circumstances. God spoke to men in the past through dreams, through visions, through interpretation of dreams. But God spoke to Moses face to face through that rock that Moses wielded, ten amazing miracles. Amazing. Nobody like Moses. The Jews looked to him as number two after Abraham. Quran. You know Moses is more mentioned, the personality most mentioned in the Quran is Musa. <laughs> Moses. 135 times mentioned more than anyone else. Wow. Finally, Moses is told to go up to Mount Nebo. Sometimes it's called Pisgah, sometimes it's called Nebo, so you're confused. It's the same. Different names for the same places. Quite common in the Bible, like Horeb is Mount Sinai. Sometimes Horeb, sometimes Sinai. Some have even three names, like Moses' father-in-law. He's sometimes called Jephro, sometimes called Ruel, sometimes called Hobab. Depends, you know. So they have different names, right? So it's quite common in those days. Finally, he goes up, he sees the land, but he cannot enter. From Nebo, just across Jordan, it's in modern-day Kingdom of Jordan, you see almost the whole of the Promised Land right to the Mediterranean on a clear day. So Moses goes up and God tells him, this is the land, but you can't go in. And then the Bible says, Moses died and was buried and his tomb Nobody knows. Why? Because if we knew that, if the Israelites knew where the tomb of Moses was, they will worship it. There will be another place of worship. Right? God wanted them just to worship at the tabernacle and later the temple. It's at one place of worship. Interestingly enough, in Jude chapter 1, it tells us, in Jude, just a little one book, the angel and Satan fought over the body of Moses to bury him. Wow, that's very unusual. I don't understand why, but anyway, no, not Satan won't bother with my body, all right? That's <laughs> for sure. I don't know why this happened, but... So, a unique man, a unique life, a unique death. It's a very humble man, Moses. He says he was the meekest of all men. A meek man is a man never defends himself. That means a coward. But when he was accused and he was doing everything, he just never let God defend him. That's meekness. Right? We know God will defend us. Even though he wrote this book, very interesting. He wrote it not as if God spoke to me. God spoke to me and I said to them, no, he spoke it in the third person. And God spoke to Moses. He wrote it. And say unto the people of Israel, Third person, as if he's just a reporter. It's him. He was the actor. 
Of course, the last part of the book, we know, the whole thing is written by Moses, but the last part has to be written by Joshua. It's after his death, right? He can't be writing after his death. So the part about it, him being going up to Nebo, dying there, being buried, nobody knows where his tomb, that must be added by Joshua to end the book. So here we see the end of a very important section of the Bible. These five books take up almost 15% of the entire Bible. That's a lot. Now, you can, I would suggest you listen to Deuteronomy. You can read it. I'm not against that. If you have the time, the ability to read, read it. But you could, if you have all these points that were brought up and you think about the points and then you listen to it, you will take roughly two hours to go to the whole book of Deuteronomy. You read, you tend to jam, you tend to stop, you tend to think, you tend to underline, you tend to refer, and you might take a long time, not two hours, you might take 200 hours to read it. So I suggest you just listen, and at certain points, stop, and then check your Bible if you want to. Right? So listen to it, because it's basically impassioned speech, not for you for the Israelites, not so much for your time, but for them at that time. But there are lessons to learn. So as we are going through this beautiful book, I want you to see how it all ties up. I want to see how it all weaves together into this amazing story. Not so much an in-depth study of the book, but an overview of the gorgeous book the beautiful book. God bless you.